Hello everybody and welcome back to No Good Thing Apart. My name is Sarah and I'm your host and today I am all alone on here. Um, there's no guest today but I will be going over John 2 and so in the way I'm going to do it is a little bit different than how I have been doing it. I have been like reading the whole thing and then going back but I feel like it you just get more out of it when you just read it as you go because I end up just repeating myself anyways. <laughs> so uh, I think I'm just gonna do a section, like read a section and then talk about it and then read another section and talk about it and go like that. So let's get started. So John 2 begins like this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So now it's something really important to note here. Um, it's So first of all, I didn't realize that my pastor was going to be going through all of John when I started like reading through John on the podcast. So ironic that that just happened that way. But one thing that he pointed out um, as well was how when Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? From our perspective, that sounds like really aggressive and harsh and like, you know, like why, why are you being so disrespectful to your mother? Like, but in that time, in that culture, that was not rude, you know, like, so he was addressing her as woman, not out of a sign of disrespect. He wasn't being disrespectful. He was saying woman in the light of like, like, it's more like saying ma'am. You know how, like, in the South, usually you teach your kids, like, call call mom ma'am, like, and father sir. Like, maybe not. I don't know if that's still... I live in Michigan, so I don't know if that's still a thing in the South. But anyways, like, it used to be. So, um, this is more like him saying, ma'am, what does this have to do with me? Like, he's not just saying to his mother, like, woman? Like, that's not how he was saying it. Uh, but it's important to note that because... If you don't have that cultural context, then you might be like, wow, that was rude. Was that a sin? But no, he wasn't disrespecting his mom. And then um, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So she like already has faith that he can do like whatever he like wants to basically. Um, and also my pastor pointed out how because they ran out of wine, the groom would have faced major embarrassment if they didn't somehow get more wine. Because back then, it was the groom who planned everything. Like nowadays, the bride usually is the one who's planning most things. But back then, it was the groom. The groom like planned it all. And he planned it for like a week. It was usually like week-long festivities. And so he would have faced major cultural embarrassment had Jesus not provided this miracle. Um, which is like really graceful that he did provide this miracle because he said to the, his mom like my hour has not yet come but yet he still provided the miracle so moving on to when he does make this sign so it says in verse six now there were six stone water jars there for the jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons jesus said to the servants fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim and he said to them now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, 
The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Which I feel like the the groom was probably so scared because he knew that they ran out of wine. But I don't think the master of the feast did. So so the master of the feast, um, I didn't know what that meant. And so I was like, like, who is the master of the feast? Is that like the dad of the bride or what is it? But apparently the master of the feast, he was... Um, the head server and the master of ceremonies. So he was responsible for making sure that the guests had enough to eat and drink. And then if he did a good job, he might be awarded a wreath at the end of the festivities. So he was responsible to make sure for making sure that everything was like put out. He wasn't responsible for actually like getting the stuff. And so had the groom ran out of the wine and it not been replenished, the master of the feast would also have faced likely some backlash because he was responsible he was like the face of the situation you know what i mean um and so the master of the feast comes to him and is like everyone serves the good wine first and when people have drunk freely then the poor wine but you have kept the good wine until now like like why did you do that and he didn't even know he did not know that jesus was the one who made the new wine because obviously he didn't know that they ran out so i think that's so wild like they had it seems like they, like, had, obviously, they probably didn't go for, like, the cheap wine. They probably had good wine, but then the wine that Jesus made from water was even better. And it wasn't, like, some, I don't know, Kool-Aid mix or something. It was literally a miracle, you know? He just changed water into wine, which is blows my mind. And, yeah, it's not like, oh, I just snuck some mixes in there or something. No, they didn't even have that back then. So that's, it's literally a miracle. And so going on to verse 11, it says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. And then it goes on to verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So pause right there you might be thinking holy cow jesus is coming unhinged because he literally made a whip of cords and was just whipping people out of the temple it's like wasn't that sin he was angry no it wasn't sin because he it was a righteous anger and he was it's not like he was angry because he wasn't getting the money with them that would be coming out of a heart of like uh what's the word like greed that'd be coming out of a heart of greed that's not why he's angry he's angry because these money changers are sitting here at the temple misusing the temple um so this temple was created to be a house of worship but instead it was turned into sort of like a mall like a business kind of deal because merchants were preying upon travelers who could not bring any sacrificial sacrificial animals with them and then they charged them super high prices for the pigeons the sheep or the cattle and like that was really messed up because you know when they're traveling they can't really bring these sacrifices so then they charge them super high prices and then 
So Jesus saw the temple was being misused. And then Jesus saw that the faithful were being burdened. So these money changers were trying to make a profit for themselves. And then these people who are wanting to provide sacrifices to God in the temple are being extra burdened by these people. And yeah, he also sees that like the religious rulers compromised on religious rulers. Sorry, I don't know if I said that right. Compromised on the use of the temple because it seems like they were wanting to use this money like to go towards I don't know something with the temple, but in the process like completely disregarding the fact that they're putting burdens on these people who are trying to, to provide sacrifices to God. So that's why Jesus was so angry. Because it was it was a righteous anger. He wasn't just like, oh, I'm mad. Blah, like, no. Um, and then going on to verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Uh, so then the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has been 46 years to build this temple, and will you re raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So a couple of things that I found interesting here. Um, when, the G when the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus' reply was, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then, but he was talking about the temple of his body. So he was telling them, destroy my body and in three days I will raise it up. But they were obviously thinking he was talking about the temple that they were standing in. And because he responded with destroy, like this temple, destroy my body in three days I will raise it up. He was, it seems to me that he was telling them that the sign for him doing these things is the resurrection. Meaning he the reason that he's able to do these things is because he is God. Like, he, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Destroy the temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That is the sign. The resurrection is the sign. But they're taking it literally. It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? And then the scripture goes on to say, he was speaking about the temple of his body. And then when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. Um, and they believed scripture the scripture and then going on to verse 23 also that was totally like what i like noticed from that i could be completely wrong but that's just what i noticed and i thought that was interesting and that could be a potential meaning for what that means it's not the end all be all um so verse 23 now when he was in jerusalem at the passover feast many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So according to my study Bible, this section, um, it's supposed to serve as an introduction to Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, because in like the next verse literally says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So this was like a direct leading into chapter three and it's important to know when you're reading scripture that like it's supposed to flow even even though chapter three is like a different chapter it's like they, they go right next to each other do you know what I mean and so Jesus knew all people and that was an affirmation 
affirmation of his divine um, omniscience. Uh, and then it says his knowledge of people's hearts is displayed in his counters with Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman in chapters three and four, which we will talk about in the next few episodes. But basically he's like, he's constantly knowing what's on their hearts and he's not like some sort of magician or mind reader. He's God. He knows what they're thinking. He knows their, like every move He's known them before they were even born. And even further on in John, when it's like the paralyzed man, or I don't think it calls him paralyzed. He's just, they call him an invalid, which implies that he has some sort of disability and he can't walk. So um, I guess you could imply that he's paralyzed. But Jesus like goes up to him and like know, knew that he was had been disabled for 38 years and Jesus wasn't even 38 at that point but he knew that because he is God it's also just so interesting to me that out of all the signs that Jesus has done the wine was the first of his signs because in Luke uh, Luke 37 verse 30 Ah, sorry, Luke 37 39, it says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, The old is good. So, my study Bible talks about how this section, and it says, Jesus concludes his response to the question about fasting with a parable of consist consisting of two main metaphors. Um, and it talks about a new patch cannot be put on an old garment, for upon washing it will shrink, and pulling on the already shrunken old garment will tear it. And then the one that I was just talking about with the wine says, one does not put new wine into old wineskins. New fermenting wine would stretch the old inelastic wineskins and cause them to burst. New wine needs newer, more elastic skins. It says, no one is best understood as an ironical condemnation of the Pharisees who favored the past and rejected the arrival of the kingdom and the new covenant it brought. The point of these two metaphors is that one cannot mix the old and the new covenant, and that the new covenant era inaugurated by Jesus' coming will require repentance, regeneration, and new forms of worship. So these, like, could not, like, they could not be related at all. You know, like, it could just be a coincidence that his first signs was making the wine from water and then like this verse it literally could just be a coincidence but I just thought of that verse when I was thinking about like how the wine was his first of the signs and I just thought that was really interesting so thank you guys so much for tuning in today today is a little bit of a shorter episode just because I'm by myself so yeah usually when I have someone else on here it's a bit longer but yeah, thank you for tuning in. And like I made that announcement on my Instagram, the No Good Thing Apart Instagram, we will now be releasing episodes. We, I will now be releasing episodes every other Friday at 7 p.m. instead of Thursdays at 2. It just works better for my schedule. I'm working full time. But yeah, so Fridays at 7 p.m. now instead of Thursdays at 2. So I will see you guys in a couple weeks and I'm not sure who we'll have on in the next episode, but I can promise you it will be great. So I will see you in two weeks. And until then, I hope you abide in the vine. Bye guys.